All right, please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Esther 7, verses 1 through 10. Please read with me the verses in bold. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold I and my people to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the, the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left his mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, and the wrath of the king abated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nason. Welcome again. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Sacramento. We're so grateful, I think, as Randy said, for the chance to worship together each week. If you're just joining us uh, for the first time or the first time in a while, uh, we've been spending this part of our summer going through the book of Esther in the Old Testament. Esther is one of two books in the Old Testament named after a woman. And uh, this morning, Esther chapter 7. <clears throat> I was talking to a friend this week who had just lost her mother. And as we were talking and walking together, she read uh, for me from a letter that her mother had written to her. And she lamented after reading it, she lamented out loud that she had never told her mother uh, what a good writer she was. And she was right, that the letter was beautiful. And together, we sort of pondered out loud whether it was truly possible to have 
every conversation that you'd like to have with someone that you love. Um, and, and whether or not you don't start realizing after you can no longer speak with someone that there were conversations that you wished you could have had. I've had other more painful discussions with folks uh, who feel like that they missed that chance. People who feel like they missed a chance to have some of the most important conversations with someone that they love. Missed the chance to say, I'm sorry. Missed the chance to say, I love you or goodbye. Sometimes uh, they talk about missing the chance to share their faith, their faith in Christ. Uh, feeling like they could have shared uh, the hope that they have, the hope that following Jesus gives them with someone that they love, that they felt like needed hope, needed purpose in their life, needed to know that there is a God who created them and loves them and gave himself for them. So I was reflecting on the two kinds of conversations and I thought, you know, it's disappointing. Certainly it's disappointing to know that you never told someone that they were a good writer. You never got to have that encouraging conversation with them, but it can be devastating to know that you never told someone that you forgive them or that God forgives them, that God can forgive them through the work of Jesus. Uh, it can be devastating to never have had a life-changing or life-saving conversation that you felt like you should have had. As we come uh, to Esther chapter 7, we read about a moment of decision like that for Esther. After postponing and delaying, uh, will Esther finally have the most important conversation that she could have with King Ahasuerus? A life-saving conversation. Will she, when the moment comes draw back and leave things sort of in status quo, feeling safe? Maybe, maybe it's not as bad as it, think, as it feels? Or will she risk rejection, even put her own life in danger by revealing in her question to the king that she is, in fact, a Jew and that she's a member of a, a people group that have been declared, that it has been decreed that they would be annihilated. Would she spare her life or lose her life by having this conversation? What can we learn from what God shows us in Esther chapter 7 about having courageous, life-changing, maybe life-saving conversations, the ones uh, that we feel like he has called us to have. How can we glean from this preparation for those conversations uh, in which we might find ourselves feeling like, for such a time as this, God, may put, God put me in this place with this person to have this conversation. I want to look at Esther chapter 7. I want to uh, look where Esther finds the words to have the conversation that she has. I want to look to where she finds the power. Where's the power in this conversation? And I want to examine how she finds favor with the king. So finding the words, finding the power, and finding favor. First, finding the words. 
When we read verse 2, what the, when the king says to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even up to half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. This is the third time in the book of Esther that the king has publicly promised to give her whatever she asks. It's the third time since she took the risk to come into his presence uninvited in chapter 5. The third time that she decided that now that Haman has conspired against her and her people, that she needed to take her own life in her hands. Um, She needed to do something because the king had decreed the annihilation of her people, every Jew in Persia. And so... The king asks this question for a third time, and the words that Esther says next are carefully chosen. She says in verses 3 and 4, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. And if we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. I want to look at, uh, I want to notice four things about what Esther says very quickly. First, she speaks in a language and in the context of the king's court. She knows the protocol. When the king asks, he asks in, uh, in protocol, what is your request? He says, even to half of my kingdom, etc. cetera. Uh, what is your wish? And uh, she knows that when the king speaks that way, your answer, no matter what the question is that you're going to ask, what the request you're going to make, your answer, uh, you have to start with something like what follows. She says, if I have found favor in your sight, O king, if it pleases the king, and then she goes on to make a request. She knows the language of the court, and she follows the protocol. Secondly, she addresses the question that the king asks specifically. He has said, what is your wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? And she uses the same language. She says, let my life be granted for my wish and my people for my request. Third, she engages the king in the context of their relationship and her uh, her. Uh, She's, she's trading on the relational capital that she has with this guy. This could be the moment, right? Uh, she, she, doesn't, she doesn't make this the moment where she brings up the uh, historical conflict between her people and Haman's people. She could make this a political conversation, but she doesn't. She doesn't, uh, she doesn't surprisingly impugn the king for his own role in the edict to destroy her people. This could be the moment when Esther gets to be holier than thou and say, and this could be the Esther judges Ahasuerus conversation, right? Let me tell you something, Ahasuerus. But she doesn't. Instead, she leverages their relationship. This is uh, about us, your pleasure with me as your wife, my position as king, as queen that you have made me. And uh, the promises that have been made, including the three times he's promised to grant her request, um, she makes it about those things. And finally, number four, she uses his own words. It's subtle, but if you go back and look at the edict that the king signed in chapter three, 
It says that letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews. And Esther says in verse 4, we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and killed and annihilated. She uses the words from the edict that he wrote. Now, maybe you've been in an important conversation, maybe even in a spiritual conversation where someone was sharing something deep or sharing with you about their faith, and it felt more to you like they were trying to win a culture war than it was that they really cared about you. They were making their points and landing their blows, as it were. Or maybe you've had an important conversation and felt more like the person who was speaking to you was making assumptions about you and then passing down moral judgments upon those assumptions that they've made based on who they think you are or what you've already said. Maybe you've looked back and uh, when you think about important conversations, either, either in your family or spiritual conversations that you've had in life, those things have felt more like ambushes, like somebody just jumped out at me and said these things that I had to believe or that I had to consider. If that's happened to you, let me apologize. And maybe uh, even as we're speaking, you look back and you realize, no, that hasn't happened to me. I've been the judger. I've been the ambusher. I've been the cultural warrior. I have made things and, and important conversations about me and my priorities and not about the people that I'm speaking to or the person that I love. We have several families in our midst, um, several, uh, se several families that work for a campus ministry uh, called Crew. It's a, it's, a, it's a college campus ministry, several others that are Crew alumni. And uh, I have been so grateful for the work that this group of ministers do uh, as they reach out to college students who are in a prime station in their life to have important conversations, life-saving conversations that will change the trajectory of their lives and of their faith. And I'm really grateful for the work uh, that this group of friends and their organization have done to try to help people prepare for what they call having gospel conversations. Uh, we've had several occasions here at Grace Sacramento where we've had those friends come in and actually walk people through this training in gospel conversations. And I would invite you, if you ever get the chance, um, you should do it. But uh, they uh, point out several things that are important when you're thinking about having a life-changing or life-saving, an important spiritual conversation with somebody that you love. And this should sound familiar. Here's four things that they talk about. First, get to know the language and the context of the person that you're hoping to have a conversation with. Like in the king's court, where there's a way to communicate, there's always, uh, there's, there's, there's always ways that people communicate specifically in every context. Uh, there's a way to say, I know you and love you enough to have understood where we're at and how people speak and communicate here. 
And, that, and in that way, we show engagement and regard and awareness uh, for someone else. Um, someone you hope to speak to uh, or have something that you need to say that's important enough to love them in that way. Secondly, are you listening to the questions that people are asking or just giving all the answers that you think that they need to hear? Remember, Esther specifically answers the question that the king asks. What's your wish? What's your request? What questions are your loved ones asking? What questions are the people in your context asking? Are they asking about uh, sin and righteousness? Maybe, it's possible. Maybe the person, your coworker across the desk is asking, what can I do with this burden of sin, right? They might be asking that. Um, but it's more likely that they're asking questions about guilt in their life or fear or loneliness or anger, sexuality or racism or broken families or purpose in life or climate change. How is the hope that you have in Christ if you're a follower of him and the freedom of forgiveness affecting the way you interact with those things and think about those things? How has it given you satisfactory answers to continue on or to wrestle with those deep and difficult parts of living in this world? Are you answering the question that people are asking? Third, they talk about having, they, 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 our friends and crew talk about the fact that life-changing conversations happen in the context of relationships. They're not transactions. People are not projects. Conversations don't always go the way that we hope. Sometimes we're rebuffed. Sometimes our love is not reciprocated. This certainly is the risk that Esther's going to take, right? This may not turn out the way that I want it to. King Ahasuerus has a lot riding on edicts and public appearances that he's already made. Sometimes people reject our forgiveness or reject our pursuit of reconciliation or even reject our version or understanding of what's happened in our relationship or history. Sometimes they're, they're committed to rejecting God and forgiveness from him. But Esther leans into her relationship with the king, knowing in a very real sense, no matter how this conversation goes, she's still going to be in a relationship with him. She's married to him, regardless of the outcome. Fourth, our friends at Crew talk about communicating content clearly, in a person's own words if possible, and inviting a response. Are you asking for forgiveness from someone in a relationship? Be clear about what you have done and why you think you need that person's pardon? Are you saying goodbye to a loved one um, in the last stages of life? Use words. Don't assume that they get it. Make sure they know you're saying I love you and goodbye. Are you sharing your faith? Are you a follower of Jesus who wants to share your faith? You'll need to communicate the content of the gospel. There, that, that we were created for a relationship with God that we have as humans both kind of corporately as a race and individually rejected and rebelled against God. We, we want to do it our own way and we've created messes in our own life and in our environment and in our culture. The Bible calls that sin. 
that unless we're restored to the giver of life, we will die, and that we will, uh, if we die disconnected from God, we will experience whatever it means to be in a truly godless existence after that. But Jesus has come to restore us to God by taking our place. His death and separation from God was supposed to be ours, but he took it on himself. And the resurrection and relationship with God that he has was supposed to be his, but he gives it to us, those who believe. Do you believe that? To share the hope that we have in Christ involves sharing as clearly as we can the content of the gospel in a language and in a relationship of love. Esther uses Ahasuerus' own words to deliver the content of her request clearly. Let my life be granted as my wish and my people for my request. We've been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed and to be killed and to be annihilated. It's bold. So Esther has found the words. Where does the power in this transaction come from? Who's the hero here, I guess, is another way to ask the question. And in the book of Esther, who's the hero? Is Esther the hero in chapter 7 and in the whole book? She certainly has operated with skill and wisdom. She's engineered three public appearances by the king in which she's promised to do whatever she asks. She has concealed her identity as a Jew until the critical moment when it may save her life. She's approached the king in meekness rather than boldness and built uh, a request that has avoided blaming the king and moved Haman directly into the crosshairs of his wrath, or the king's wrath when the right moment comes. Esther has been an operator. She's been getting it done. But I think I would agree with Pastor Daniel, who, I, who argued last week when he preached chapter 7 that, uh, when he preached chapter 6, that chapter 7 of the book of Esther is not the turning point. That's already happened. Esther chapter 6 is the moment when things take a turn. During a sleepless night in chapter 6, we're told uh, the king can't sleep, and so he calls in an assistant to read him a bedtime story. Daniel suggested something really boring, like the chronicles of the happenings of the king. But in it, he discovers that Mordecai helped save his life. And by God's strange providence, he decides he needs to honor Mordecai. By God's strange providence, Haman happens to be in the king's court in the middle of the night. By God's strange providence, by the end of the chapter, Haman is honoring Mordecai with the honor that he had hoped to gain for himself. In fact, by the end of chapter 6, Haman's death sentence has already been declared. In fact, spoken by his own wife, she says to him, Look, if Mordecai before, me, before whom you have fallen is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Chapter 6 is the turning point in the book of Esther. And chapter 6, I don't know if we made mention of this last week, makes no mention of Esther. She doesn't appear in the chapter. It's all, you know, scary dreams for the king and Haman parading around. But 
Chapter 6 outlines detail after detail that happens so perfectly choreographed that it seems like a powerful, invisible hand is moving pieces into place to save God's people. So who's the hero? Who's the hero of the book of Esther? How will the Jewish people be saved from annihilation? By God's providence? By his mysterious providence and his sovereignty in controlling all things? Or by Esther's effort, her operation? By God's design or Esther's pursuit and Esther's courage? I think that the answer from the book of Esther is yes. The answer is yes. It shouldn't be lost on us that while God's providence is on display in chapter 6, it's the, it's the zenith of the, of the book, the, the climax. Uh, it's bookended on either side, chapter 5 and chapter 7, describing how Esther diligently uses every means available to her to pursue an end that she's convinced is God's will. God's promise to save his people. The power comes from God, and nothing will prevent him from carrying out his plans and keeping his promises to his people. He will work, but he always works, always chooses to work through the faithful effort and prayers of his people. That's how we set it up. This is one of the profound mysteries of all of the scripture. God is in control. We are responsible. We're called to action. This is how he has chosen to operate in the world, to invite us and include us into being part of what he is going to do, to join something that will not be defeated. Our friends and crew describe successful evangelism like this. This is their uh, definition. Taking the initiative to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. You don't have the power to make the conversations that you have life-changing or life-saving. You don't have that kind of power in your uh, beautiful words or your uh, thoughtful arguments or in uh, preparing just right and setting the stage. It's just, you just don't have the power. Only God can do that, but you can control whether or not you have those conversations. You don't get a say in whether or not, uh, you do get a say in whether or not you share the hope that you have or you reconcile a relationship or you tell someone a hard truth that might be painful or lead them deeper into repentance. But here's the beautiful news is that while we're called to action and God chooses to work through the prayers and the action of his people, when we blow it, which we do all the time, when we fumble or we're met with rejection, uh, we can rest in the assurance that the power wasn't going to be in our eloquent words or our perfect presentation or our timing. The power comes from God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And I would say, if you're a seeker, right? I don't know how uh, we all ended up in the room this morning, but not every one of us would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. Uh, maybe you're here investigating. Maybe you were invited by a family member and say, I'm not sure that I can say with integrity that Jesus is Savior. But if you are a seeker and you're investigating faith in Christ, 
I suspect that your experience will be similar to what I just described except inverted. What I mean by that is this. I want to encourage you, keep asking questions. Keep reading, keep pursuing. Don't be satisfied by not answering the, the, the draw in your heart to figure out who God is and what the meaning of life is. Keep pursuing. Use every means at your disposal to understand if there is a God and what this thing, the gospel is and who Jesus is. Use every means at your disposal. And right now you will feel like you are making every effort to seek out the answers. But one day, by God's grace, you'll know that God came and found you. That the turning point didn't come through your own effort, but it came through his power. The answer is yes, it's both. Man, it seems like whoever has King Ahasuerus' favor can get just about anything they want, right? If you're in his good graces, uh, you, can, you can manipulate the empire he seems shallow and ignorant and sort of easily manipulated. Uh, but also his favor, who, he, who, you know, who he's loving the most right now is fickle. He seems like he switches best friends faster than the in crowd in junior high. In seven chapters, first his favorite was Vashti, then it was Esther, then it was Haman, then it was Mordecai. Then it was Esther again. Now Esther has the king's favor again. She's about to get whatever she asks for because she has, quote, found favor in his eyes. She's pleased the king. In fact, when the jig is up for Haman, right, he, he previously manipulated the king to get a edict to annihilate the Jews when he was the king's bestie, but now he's on the outs. And... Uh, when the jig is up for Haman, when Esther calls him out as a wicked foe and an enemy who has plotted to kill the queen and her people, when the king storms out of the banquet, Haman doesn't follow the king because he knows who he needs to beg for his life from. He stays to beg Esther for his life because she's the one that's found favor in the eyes of the king. Now, it's not clear from the text why Ahasuerus storms out. It seems pretty clear that he's already decided that uh, Haman is the bad guy. It, maybe he's trying to figure out uh, a way to take Haman down without appearing flimsy and flip-flopping in his edict, right? He's, he's complicit in this thing. He's trying to figure out what he's going to do, and when he comes back in... Haman provides him with the excuse that he needs. See, it's, I think, you read the text, it's highly unlikely that the king actually thought that Haman was assaulting the queen in this moment. But you can understand why laying on the queen's couch was strictly forbidden. And so it was just this moment, this sort of impropriety that gives Ahasuerus Justification in eliminating a high-ranking official without any explanation. He's gone. Boom, like whiplash. Haman's out and Esther is in. Maybe you feel that way in life sometimes. 
Like the thing that you've been chasing keeps eluding you, or the thing that you've built your life around keeps changing its standards on you. The affection of some person who never, uh, who, who never gives affection back, or some definition of success that seems to sort of change or leap out in front of you every time you approach it or achieve it. The recognition uh, that you want from the person that you want it from that never seems to come. Maybe religion has felt that way to you in life. Like a fickle master whose favor you can never quite get or never quite figure out. You're not praying enough or doing the right things. Here's the good news of the gospel. Our appearing before God, the King and Creator. Our being reconciled with that King does not depend on whether or not we have found favor in his sight. But rather, that Christ has found favor in his sight. This is the gospel. That believers and followers of Jesus are bound up with Jesus together in God's eyes. That when he looks at us, we're hidden in Christ. And Jesus is the one for to whom God says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God's not fickle or shallow. He doesn't uh, give up on those for whom his son has died. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And this is his son in whom he is well pleased. And so we come into the king's presence as followers of Jesus, like dearly beloved sons and daughters, And nothing can separate us from the love of God that Jesus has obtained for us, the favor that Jesus has and gives to us. He will love us today and leave us tomorrow. He will never, he promises, leave you or forsake you.